Here we are now, with episode number four of our series, You Are the Chosen One. The central plot for the book, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, is that Harry is at wizard school and these terrible things keep happening. Tragedies keep occurring to different people around the castle. And it appears they are some sort of attack. And there are always these clues left behind, sometimes very obvious clues, such as writing in blood on the wall that says, The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. And Harry and his friends set themselves to finding out who could this be? What could possibly be happening? And there's an air of tension around who's going to be next? Is anyone safe? And Harry and his friends, as clever as they are, find out that it's got something to do with the heir of Slytherin. The true heir of Slytherin. The one who will inherit the kingdom of Slytherin. And there is also a theme of well, how do we work out who is being attacked? Because it appears that this killer who is doing these things is selective about who they kill. And we know that, well, certain Slytherin people have a prejudice towards certain people with a minority cultural background and in the case of this story well it's the people that have as they call it non-pure blood which means their parents weren't wizards or witches they weren't of muggle types and we've already seen there's this thing this confrontation this belief this thing came out when they were arguing with Malfroy, who is in Slytherin. And, Slyther and Malfroy called Hermione the M-word, mudblood. So Harry and his friends get to thinking, maybe it's Malfroy. It's got to be Malfroy. It must be Malfroy. He fits the profile perfectly. And they do all sorts of things to try and fit him into their hypothesis, as we should say. But the story continues, and things keep happening, and there's another incident where the students are learning to duel, duel, which is wizard fighting, and something goes wrong with one of the spells, and a snake turns up. Harry's there, and he has this moment where he says, 
to the snake, no, don't attack this person. This person is my friend. And after this incident, his friends turn around and say, what were you doing? You were talking to the snake. And this makes Harry feel very bad. This makes Harry feel like he looks very bad in the eyes of public opinion. In the opinion of all his classmates and his schoolmates. And he feels very bad to have been speaking to the snake. And that it came off that he was egging it on. when Even though he really was actually just trying to get a helping hand for his friend. He was trying to get the snake off. And this quality of talking to snakes, well, it turns out that that's actually a quality that the heir of Slytherin had. And it's not entirely uncommon, apparently, in this wizarding world. But Harry takes this to mean that there's something bad in him. And he also remembers back to when he was wearing the sorting hat, and the sorting hat was saying, there's something in you that would be good in Slytherin. So Harry has this growing suspicion This growing doubt that there's something in him that is closely related to the air of Slytherin or could possibly fit this profile of what they're trying to put onto Malfoy, what they're trying to find. And he goes back and forth. This is a big thing in Harry's mind with the public opinion and his classmates and how he sees himself. His self-image is very closely tied up with the opinion of his friends of him and how his community sees him. He cares very much and he worries very much. And when rumours go round that Harry can talk to snakes and Harry was egging this snake on in this incident at the duel practice, dueling practice, and so on, well, he becomes very upset. He becomes almost tormented. He becomes so worried. Because so much of his self-esteem and his self-image and how he is as a person is tied up in his community, and it feels like he's always the one in the spotlight. He's always the one getting into trouble. Why is it always him and his friends that are there when there's drama? And always wanting, there's always someone saying something about Harry Potter because he's so famous. And he's always had this fame, he's always had these people pestering him, and he's always people talking about him, and there's always people that are jealous of him, and so on. So this is Harry's hang-up. This is Harry's problem. And more broadly, if we can step back from our plot for a moment, there is something in speaking to animals. And this comes up in many different forms, many different ways. And traditionally, it's actually a very spiritual thing. You are considered spiritual if you can speak to animals. And, as a matter of fact, you can make it a spiritual practice, quite simply. 
to speak to animals and how you speak to them can draw you either more into harmony with nature or it can make you more cold towards nature. And many people have pets and as a matter of fact, they do speak to those pets. They speak with a particular tone of voice. They say particular things. But not many people realize that that is a reflection of them, not their pets. So if you have pets, be nice to them. And if you don't have pets, well, you can take the opportunity to go out and be in nature and just wonder, what would I say to this bird? What would I say? What do I feel like saying in this situation? If I thought this bird could hear me, what would I say? If this bird could understand me, what could I say? And you can have a conversation with animals and with trees and with mountains and with rivers. You can have a conversation with a rock. <laughs> I believe I've even demonstrated before how to have a conversation with a rock, how that might go, how that went for me. And this as a habit can get you in more tune with nature. And we all have a different animal within us. We all have our own spirit animal. And that's why each of the houses is an animal. A Slytherin snake. A Gryffindor griffin. The, what is the Ravenclaw? The, like the eagle and the Hufflepuff is... I don't know what a Hufflepuff is. Is it a mythological creature? Some sort of... Like Buckbeak. Is Buckbeak a Hufflepuff? I don't know. I'll have to brush up on my animal mythology, Harry Potter animal mythology there. But the point is that there are different animals for each of the houses, and the animals represent a character profile. And it's not a character profile in the sense of a value sphere or a star sign. It's not developmental psychology. It's something much more primal than that. The characteristics of a snake does not fit into a developmental model. So it's much more deep. It's much more close to your origins to know which is your spirit animal. Harry finds his way upon a secret diary. And this is a critical moment. This is a critical prop in this novel. And always, always, we need to understand this about literature in general. We need to pay extra attention to what an author does when they use the prop of the book. When you are reading a book and what is in that story, in that book, 
something about a book, you need to pay extra attention. You need to be very careful with what's being said about that book. And this is a prop that's used throughout all literature as an effect, as a comment. And it's a sneaky thing that authors do where they comment on either the book they're writing themselves and the book you're reading at the exact time, or they're commenting on the knowledge of civilization, of human knowledge, of what our current understanding of knowledge is, which comes from books, which is represented in books. Now, in this day and age, we get information from other places. But traditionally, more, more, how would, should I say? I shouldn't say traditionally. I should say more, more generally, more, yeah, generally speaking. Yeah, that's one way to put it. So the book comes up, is used a number of times. It's a motive that's used a number of times in these chronicles. And it's used in multiple chronicles in multiple ways. But you can read it as such as that whenever the author is writing about a book, you can substitute it with the book that you're reading. And this is a funny trick to get inside the mind of the author. So, for example, if we're reading this book, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and then our character, Harry, comes along and finds a diary and he's writing in this diary and this diary happens to be a magical diary and then this diary starts to write back to him and he forms a relationship with this diary. Well, then we can say, actually, what if this diary were something that we would just substitute the literal book of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. How would that read? How would this passage read? Because the relationship that Harry has with this diary does become very intimate. Some people live by a book. When you read a book, you're sharing someone's memory. When you read a book, you're sharing someone's inner world. A book can overtake your life. And a book is slightly different to a diary. And there was something significant to this diary because Harry found it because someone was trying to get rid of it. And it's a magic diary. And Harry is quite astonished to find some of the things that he's written in it as he reads back over it at certain times. And you can have that effect, actually, with your own diary. You can cause this sort of loopback feedback circle when you do your own diary. Because you'll write, you'll write things in one state, in one mood, and then you'll come back later a week or two or more, usually takes a couple of weeks or so for you to really move out of a place in your inner world into a different sort of space, 
is, is how we speak about such things. If we can speak about such things in such simple terms. And then you read back over your diary and you think, what was I thinking? Oh my goodness, I cannot believe this. And a personal diary, well, that's the sort of thing you think, make sure no one reads this. And there is this thing of, well, this is my personal diary. I'm going to put it in a locked box under the bed. And I'm going to make sure my parents definitely don't read it. And none of my friends read it. And it's probably a good thing that no one reads it. And you wouldn't want someone to read it. And that process, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very big, what do I say? I greatly encourage you to write a diary. I greatly encourage you to write your story. Write your thoughts down. Write down your memories. Write down your interactions. Write down what's significant to you. And write it as a story. What were the moments that made an impression on you? What were the moments that are significant to you? And even just do free flow writing. That's where you just write whatever comes to mind. Whatever you're thinking. You try and write your thoughts as the thoughts come out. And if you do free flow writing, well, (laughs) that can be some of the most revealing stuff. Because then you'll come back and read it later and think, this is just absolute rubbish. This doesn't make any sense. Or at least that's what happens when I do my free flow writing. (laughs) Maybe you'll have brilliancy. Maybe there's something in you. Maybe there's a genius in you that needs to be shared. So I'm definitely, I'm always, whenever I get the chance, and I'm going to say it again, and I've said it before, write your journal. Write in your journal. Write your autobiography. And write it clearly. Take your time. Be sincere about it. And then wait a few weeks and go back and read it. Or even wait a year and go back and read it. And that can be a very powerful process. That can be very opening. And in the case of Harry and this magical diary that he finds... Well, he finds that there's something quite magical about it. And there's another character in this diary. There's something in this diary. And it starts changing him. It starts drawing him in. He starts to understand why he found it in a state of someone trying to get away from it. He's actually quite worried about it. And this thing in him that he is the heir of Slytherin, that he has a dark side, that he talks to snakes. This dark side is activated within him as he writes in this diary. And books do activate different parts of us. Books trigger different parts of us. And if we look at The history of humanity, there have been people that have lived by a book. And this is in the religious traditions of the world. And I mean most prominently the Judeo-Christian religions, which is Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Those are the main ones. Those are the big ones. 
which basically means they, they live off the Bible. And the Quran is, is different to the Bible, but it has a lot of overlays. It has, has a, over, a lot of overlaps. And Judaism has a different form, their, their own form for the Bible, but there's also a lot of overlaps. And the Bible, the Christian Bible, well, that is the most influential book of all time. It's the most published. It's the most read of all time. And there are people that aspire to live by the book. And, and take a look at what that book is. Just like Harry Potter, it's a mythological story. If we were to read the Bible in the same way we read Harry Potter, there would be a lot of overlays. That's a lot of similarities. We're learning about these characters. We read about these characters. They're in a totally different world. And apparently in this world, magical things happen. Strange things happen. They have very different complexes to them, different goals in their life, different ways of living, different morals, different perspectives. And these characters are interacting with each other. There's drama. There's drama between the characters. When they clash, there's good and evil. And it's always not as clear as black and white of who's good and who's evil. So the story, when we, when we talk about the myth, and I always love what Osho says. Osho is a spiritual teacher who I've taken quite a liking to. And I always love what he says about the myth. And basically, whenever I use this word myth, and I'm really thinking about it, and I'm really trying to get deep into it, I remember what Osho said. And that is that the myth is somewhere between a truth and a fiction. It's a narrative it's a story which is set in a place which is not exactly the same as ours, but has similarities. And you can use the mid myth to bridge to truth. It's a necessary fantasy. It's a necessary story. A necessary falsehood, but not entirely a falsehood. And yet at the same time, it's not a truth. It's not true. And we can talk all day about, well, is the Bible true or not? And that's a question of epistemology. That's a question of what is truth. And we can make even comparisons between Harry Potter and the Bible in terms of their narrative structures and the structures within their narratives, then we can make comparisons. But how they function culturally is very different. How they function culturally is totally different. So in the sense that Harry Potter is a modern work and the Bible is pre-modern, they have almost nothing in common. And yet they both have narratives within them that talk about deeper truths.
So the prop of the book is something that will come up again. And every time, take, take this as a lesson for whenever you're reading anything. And you remember one time we were talking about picture, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is a book by Oscar Wilde. Now there is a book in that book. The main character starts reading a book and it activates things within him. It activates his dark side. It activates Dorian Gray's lust and his hedonism and his desire. And this leads him to feel guilty. It leads him to feel dark and remorseful. And it's a book that does that. It's a book that he reads over and over again. And there are books also that don't just necessarily activate the dark side of us. There are books that activate the good side. There are books that can show us things that are within us, which can be used for the betterment of the people around us. And some people would argue that the Bible is that. We can have theological debates till the cows come home. But let's get back to our narrative. So Harry starts writing in this diary. And he has the fears that he is the heir of Slytherin. And a tragedy falls on the school. Which is that someone is taken from the school down into the Chamber of Secrets. So it's not just an attack. We've got ourselves a kind of hostage situation. And just at the critical time, well, Hermione works out what the creature is that has been going around doing these attacks. And that is the basilisk, the giant snake. And she's clever enough to work out that if you look at it in the eyes, you die immediately. And so she's going around with her mirror around each corner and she gets petrified. She gets petrified holding the mirror in one hand and the piece of paper in the other, which says pipes, has pipes written on it. And her friends, Ron and Harry, work out, okay, so it's the basilisk. It's getting around in the pipes. That means it'll kill you if you see it, so keep your eyes closed. And this person has been taken into the Chamber of Secrets, and they've just worked out how to get into the Chamber of Secrets, and all the plot ends come together. And the other side of the story, the other piece of information, is that, well, it's Ginny Weasley. Ron's younger sister and Harry's friend that has been taken. So it's personal. The stakes are high. It's family. It's very important that they get this person back alive. So Harry and Ron make their way down into the Chamber of Secrets and Lockhart comes along and there's this mishap where Lockhart tries to betray them and do a memory charm. And <laughs> is there something funny about 
Lockhart doing the memory charm on himself. Because the the side plot there is that Ron had broken his wand, and so all the spells that he was doing would backfire on him, and he tried to, you know, there's this one where he tried to do a spell on Malfroy, and then he'd done it on himself, and he's puking up slugs. And in this situation where they're going down into the Chamber of Secrets, Lockhart then takes Ron's wand and does his memory charm, which he's been using for all these wizards to write his own books. It's his phony. It's the way he's been phony. The way he's built his career is by wiping the memory of these other wizards. And yet it backfires. So now Lockhart has the memory charm on him, on himself. So that's that's sort of a side plot. That's not really much. I mean, it, it's very cleverly woven in it, and it all ties in very well. But the main point is that now Harry is turned up at the Chamber of Secrets, and he's gone in and he's seen Ginny's body lying there. And who does he see there? Who else does he see? He sees the man the manist- the manifest form of the character in the diary that he's been writing in. And this is Tom Riddle. And there's a moment where Harry tries to say, Tom, you've got to help. We've got to save her. And at that point, he realizes, well, Tom's not on his side. And it's amazing. It's amazing that Harry couldn't have worked that out from his relationship with the diary. It's amazing that he, that Tom Riddle was able to communicate with Harry in such a way that wouldn't give away his intentions, even though Harry would have had these warnings of, oh, it's activating the dark side in me. So Harry has these intuitions, he has these feelings about certain things, but he can't follow them. He can't say, no, I need to leave this alone. All oh, this is bad. So he's still trying to work out what's right and what's wrong. And we also find out that, well, it was Ginny that had the diary before him. And furthermore, it was actually Ginny that was orchestrating the attacks on the people. It was Ginny that was doing the work and coordinating with the giant basilisk, the giant snake and opening the Chamber of Secrets, and leaving messages in blood on the wall, and doing these terrible things. And this she was doing because she was possessed. She was possessed by the contents of a book. And that is an image, that is a statement by the author, that a book can drive you to do things way outside your character. Terrible things. Horrific things. A book really can get inside you. And Ginny, think of how Ginny felt. Well, she must have at some point realized what she was doing and been shocked. And that's why she's tried to get the diary away from her. That's why she's revolted against it. And to think, what would she have gone through? Because Harry has spent all year thinking, well, maybe he's the heir of Slytherin. And he's been thinking, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be so bad if I was the heir of Slytherin? I feel so bad. I'm so afraid of my inner darkness. 
And Ginny, well, she's had the same thoughts, and it actually is her. She's had to deal with the facing the fact that she did do these terrible things, that she is an instrument of darkness, an instrument of evil. And of course she is innocent. She's been possessed. And the backstory is that the diary was slipped into her book collection by the Malfroys. So she is innocent in all this, but innocent in a very different way to Harry. So Harry has a showdown with the basilisk and the sorting hat and the the phoenix Dumbledore's phoenix come to help him out and the morphing of Tom Riddle into Lord Voldemort which comes out during this showdown that this is actually the evil dark lord in a different form well that's put to an end by killing the book and Harry picks up the fang from the dead snake and kills the book. Sometimes a person's story is exactly the same as the person themselves. So peace is restored at Hogwarts and the wizarding community relaxes And once again, Harry has saved the day. And he has a conversation with Dumbledore, like he does after each of his adventures. We can see that there's something very troubled in Dumbledore about this prop, this diary. Because Dumbledore can see that it's a particular form of magic. And this is something very deep. This is something that comes up later as the Horcruxes. And this term Horcruxes is specific to Harry Potter mythology. But it's an important part of the story. So we'll talk about it more when it comes up as it's appropriate in this story. But to summarize the Chamber of Secrets we can see that there's a lot in opening to knowledge and opening to new experiences. And the other symbolic reference that I wanted to make was, well, when you see the basilisk, when you make eye contact with it, you die. And actually there's a correlation in that between the eye contact with the basilisk and eye contact with a person. When a person sees you and you see them, you die a little bit. And this is a concept that is well known in the spheres of Tantra. So if you study Tantra meditative techniques, then this technique of Eye contact is used for ego disillusion. 
ego dissolving. And the theory goes that when you look at someone and they see you, you die a little bit. Now, you don't die in the same way that you do in this story where you completely die. But you only die a little bit, which is that a piece of you dissolves. A piece of you is no more. And that can be a very scary thing. That can be a very intimate thing if you're practicing eye contact. And the other symbolic stretch, I think, I don't know if I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here or not, but the other symbolic stretch is that the one I mentioned before, which is when you see certain things, they can't be unseen. And simply by seeing something, you open up Pandora's box. And now, well, these days, the images that are bombarded to young children at certain ages are very impressing on them, very conditioning on them. And many many children have access to the internet, which is unrestricted, and that can lead to all sorts of conditionings. And I don't have a solution. I don't have a solution for this. I don't know if I want to say that kids shouldn't see certain things. I don't want to say that kids shouldn't be allowed access to the internet. And I'm not going to be the one to stand up and say how it should be restricted or what age or anything like that. The best thing that we can do for us at this stage is to understand what it means to see something and in an instant have yourself changed, have your life changed. And that can be either the death of a part of you, a change in a part of you, or the opening of Pandora's box, the coming into new knowledge. And when you see something new and it seems good, it seems like a valuable piece of knowledge, well, maybe the lesson is just be careful. Maybe the lesson of Pandora's box is all knowledge has something behind it which is not so useful after all. So I think we'll leave it there because we've got to the end of the Chamber of Secrets and we'll start next episode with the Prisoner of Azkaban. And... Yeah, I'm very much enjoying this series so far. I hope you are too. And as always, so far, what we'll do is we'll finish with a few minutes of silence. So you might be thinking to switch off. You might have ideas of what you want to do after this. And it's all very important. I know your life is very important. (laughs) Impossible to hide the condescending nature here. (laughs) I don't mean to be condescending. I'm sure your life is important. But leaving that aside for just a few minutes is also important. So don't skip off. All I'm asking is for a few minutes and you just have to sit down wherever you are 
Stop whatever you're doing and just relax. Close your eyes, take a few deep breaths and just sit quietly for just a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.